0: Namotasa Bhagavato, arahato sama sambutasa, namotasa Bhagavato, arahato sama sambutasa, namotasa Bhagavato, arahato sama sambutasa, aparutadi sangamatasa tawara, Yeh, so do one, ta ba moon, jan, do satang. So this opportunity to reflect on what is what you're hearing, what is being said, reflecting is paying attention, listening, and being the witness of how it affects you. how you receive the words that come from my mouth it's like this, and uh, again, I remind you that this witness position, the Puto position, is not a critic, it's just a witness, non-critical witness, so it's not about good or bad, true or false, right or wrong, but it's, it's just listening to the experience of here and now, not as a participator in the experience, not a member of any group, but as a pure witness of the way it is at this moment. Because when we talk about experience, it's always here and now. So we experience life through through this form that we call the body, ourselves. And it's a sensitive form in a sensual universe meaning that it's about feeling. Sensitivity about feeling, about happiness and unhappiness, or suffering and sorrow, grief, anguish, despair, or joy, or wonder, confusion, doubt, and worry. These are experiences that we have through these forms that we very much identified with. So the human birth, meaning the one we were born, then we start experiencing the sensory world through this form, through the body. So this is a reflection on the way it is because we tend to, to think of ourselves as the body. Our true nature is, is this, this physical form and our, and then we create ourselves as a separate person we see ourselves as separate in form and so we we also create ourselves as separate personalities individuals we experience the differences the the dualities of experience through the eyes ears nose tongue body through the mind so, experience is always about change and impermanence. And the Buddha encourages us to be the witness to change. All sankaras, all conditions are impermanent. Is not a judgement whether that's good or bad, right or wrong, but it's about the way it is, that we can actually be the observer, the witness. The judgments come when we start thinking, because thinking is, is dualistic. It divides into right and wrong, good and bad, true and false, male and female. And so everything that is sensory oriented has, it has both its positive and negative aspects. But we, generally, people don't reflect in this way. They don't witness life. They experience life through their bodies and conditioned minds and wonder why they suffer. Because uh, the, this dualistic, divisive, tendency that we are very much attached to is, uh, you know, you can't just sustain happiness and goodness and fairness and justice as kind of permanent conditions. Because this whole planetary system that we're experiencing through these separate forms is in this inexorable process of change, which we can actually... Reflect upon, and then we ask ourselves, "What is there something that doesn't change? Is if everything's changing, what does that mean? Because change always implies birth and death, arising, ceasing, and so you know how long." Much longer will this planet last in the in the solar system or the sun. What what'll happen when the sun burns out? Or when a meteor collides with the planet Earth and it blows up. You know, so we can imagine a future occasionally because of our we believe in change in a very personal way we take it very personally, then, you know, well, our future generations, what will happen to them? And so you hear this on the media, you know, about the economy, the climate change, the wars, and the future of future generations is something to worry about. Because the world, the planet's never had this many human beings living on it at the same time. And there's all kinds of ominous signs of change that aren't particularly uh, exciting to us, or pleasing to us. And this is the realm of samsara, or the the realm of change that we identify with and experience life through the changing form. then what doesn't change when the Buddha asked us to investigate suffering, the causes of suffering? You know, so then this is putting it, what, what can investigate, we can, we can create theories about suffering with our intellects, so there's a lot of that, a lot of fear theories about the causes of suffering and and who's to blame for these for these the suffering that we experience. And uh, you know, we we have relationships with others, and and we uh, you know they can be romantic and pleasant or just uh, terrible or horrible or traumatic. <clears throat> So, when we try to find a permanent, happy relationship with somebody else, then we're we're demanding something in a possible situation. Or for the universe to stabilize into a permanent state of, of bliss and happiness and joy is wishful thinking, because the very nature of the universe that we experience through these forms is about birth and death, so just listening to this like just the the word death what is that about? what happens when we die when we think of ourselves as dying you know then what what's going to happen to me when I die do I have a a soul, or something that will be reborn again. And uh, then there's various theories about that. It can be complete wipe-out oblivion, or, or, you know, theories about heaven and hell, or reincarnation. And these are theories we create with our intellect to try to imagine what happens... When, when our form passes away, when it ceases to operate, and no longer uh, the senses no longer operate, the internal organs cease. So reflecting on the sense of a separate self as I've reflected on this many times, the sakya ditti, the first fetter, or the ego, is this, is this uh, ignorant belief that, that what we are is the form, the physical form, male or female. You know, this is what I am, because it's like I'm experiencing life through this form. So if anything seems to be me and mine, it's this body. So this identification clinging to this this assumption that I am of uh, this physical form with its senses, then I live a life interpreting experience through the limitations of that perception and so i start taking everything very personally success and failure praise and blame i see everything that happens to to me in this form i see it in personal way because it's it's happening to me this person sitting here and so it is happening to me in in that uh, conditioned way of thinking. But that conditioned way of thinking is also very conditioned. It's the way we've been programmed, the way we've been programmed to to interpret experience through this identity with the physical body. Through the emotions we have, through the memories, so this causes conflict because we're all different in that way. We, we, are not. We can't agree on everything because we see things in very different from different perspectives. Because on the conditioning realm, the conditioning is not going to be a stable, firm, just and fair, righteous and moral conditioning is going to be dependent on so many other factors. That we have different cultures, different religious theories and views, different psychologies, different ways of interpreting experience. And so when we expect to find harmony and peace on the level of phenomena, then we're, we're, we're going to be terribly disillusioned and disappointed, because that's an impossibility. So the word in, in Theravada Buddhism, in Pali, the word anatta, non-self, is always a great mystery. Because if there seems anything more real to any of us, is it a sense of a self, as identified with the body, with the sensory experiences, with our emotions, if they seem very personal, emotions are very personal, And so we we try to figure it out through the intellect. We go through psychoanalysis, or various uh, treatments to try to get the right view established. The right sense of self-respect is encouraged. To be a morally morally trustworthy person is encouraged. To uh, to be honest and fair. Uh, to let go of anger and greed and jealousy and fear, and so these are various ideas that we oftentimes are conditioned by so we you know then the the reality of experience isn't is and this uh changing changing us that we can't stop. We can't stop change. Change is, is ongoing in this realm of samsara or the worldly conditioned realm that we're very much conditioned to believe in. So it's a very interesting time now and then uh, through the technology, internet and various opportunities to encourage this reflective capacity because in ages of the past, in China, in Persia, in India, in Greece, there have been sages or individual human beings who have reflected on life, on experience, have, you know, the philosophers, the sages of the past, And of course, they've tried to expound the Dhamma or the truth in the language of the time and the culture and the religious conditioning that, that they've been conditioned by. Because that's what we know. We have to operate from the way we are. But there's always a perennial reality to wisdom, so we oftentimes turn to Buddhism or Vedanta or Taoism, Stoicism, Christian mysticism, various ways that people have developed in different cultures, different religious traditions, trying to express what is inexpressible. And in this tradition, Theravada tradition, this word anatta, non-self, is given great importance. So is it a doctrine? Is anatta a doctrine we believe in, there's absolutely no self? And that life is a delusion? And, uh, you know, that, that, uh, we, you know, we come up when logically speaking, when we talk about no self, it, it ends up as annihilation. Logically, it's annihilating the self. You've got to get rid of your ego. You've got to destroy it. And, and then you take that to its natural conclusion of suicide. Might as well commit suicide get rid of the form permanently. And that's the logic and reason, is reasonable, is logical, when you dogmatize anatta, not self. There's no self, there's nothing. There's no God. There's no life after death. There's no reincarnation. There's no rebirth, so this total negation ends up with, with, with you know, with a sense of futility and nothing matters. Or you you take the opposite tendency of. Gama Sukalikanu Yoko, in the in the first sutta that the Buddha delivered, he made it very clear, it's between Gama Sukalikanu Yoko and Atakilamatanu Yoko. Gama Sukalikanu Yoko is, uh, you know, enjoyment of the sensories. Life is to be experienced through... Drink and eat and be happy. Eternal life is just nothing but eternal joy and happiness. Is the way we conceive it through the way we uh, what we consider or conceive of eternal happiness. Now, can any of us really imagine eternal happiness? You know, it's a it's a beautiful concept eternal joy bliss forever is uh, you know on one level quite a, a inspiring concept if we're good and we're moral we're we're uh, fair and just unselfish and kind then we die we live in eternal joy and bliss and happiness forever But if we don't, if we're selfish and mean-hearted, immoral, then we go to the opposite of eternal hell, where suffering, miserable forms of suffering are forever. So this word forever, you know, is just another English word. But it means in terms of time, Forever means endless time, and this is what we identify with. We identify with time. That this form, sitting here on this seat, if I misbehave, then I go to hell and suffer eternal misery in in an 89-year-old form. <laughs> or do I go back to being young again, or... Is it uh, what kind of what kind of form suffers eternally, or is blissful and happy eternally? So they're reflecting us. We're not denying or or anything, but observing. Just the words we use, the concepts that we we've been conditioned to believe, to grasp need to be reflected upon. They are what they are. They arise and cease, the words, the concepts, the feelings they arouse in us. These feelings arise and cease. Birth and death happens all the time. But what is constant, what is stable, through all this change that we experience through the form, right now, at this very moment, sitting here in the temple, what is constant that doesn't change, that's eternal, that it was never born, never dies? And your mind, thinking mind stops. You can't imagine that. You can't imagine that because your your whole sense of a separate self is about imagination. So not imagining, there's still conscious awareness when your imaginary capabilities cease. Then there's silence, peace. You can call it bliss or happiness if you want to have positive interpretations of it. So this is where we take the the puto position, the witnessing position. When we talk about meditation or bhavana, we're taking this stand this position, like these Buddha Rupas that you see in the temple are icons of that, the position of awareness here and now. So like the Buddha Rupa behind me is, is, you know, an icon of that, of the eternal, now, present, witnessing, not judging, And I remember one time having an experience here in, in this very temple years ago, when we ha- had this when this Buddha Rupa was arrived, and I was sitting in front of it, and uh, it's rather big and and slightly overwhelming, and uh, and I began to witness a sense of being judged by it that my conditioning as a person, separate person, was God or a wise sage, all they do is pass judgments on you. And so, you know, just even though I'd been a Buddhist for many years, meditating, I became aware of an old conditioned habit being brought up as a Christian, of being judged all the time by God. And even though I no longer believed in God in the way I did when I was a child, I still had the remnants of that, it was conditioned. I wasn't born with that condition. And then a Buddha Rupa that's blessing. You know, like the Buddha group, is he judging anyone in this room? Is that the the mudra, a sign? You know, is he passing judgments on you? Any of you for any misdemeanors or wrongs that you've committed in the past or in the present? No, it remains equanimous, a blessing of Dhamma, all the time, and this is changing the view of just how I interpreted an icon made out of bronze covered in gold. You know, uh, this is where you you begin to see through, witness uh, the, the assumptions, the kind of latent sleepy assumptions of your past as they manifest in the present. Then just seeing the Buddha Rupa as a blessing, then Buddha Rupas become very beautiful icons for me. I really like Buddha Rupas because they always remind me of that, of the blessing of the Buddha blessing me, rather than judging me. So in meditation, in bhavana when we take the puto position, we're actually witnessing things of the past that arise, the sense of a self, the fears, the resentments, the anxiety, the worries, the bitter memories, and on and on like that. And, and it's interesting when we start, when we first begin to take an interest in meditation, you know, the first time we meditate is usually can be quite horrible because we we, uh, we, we don't know how to deal with, you know, we have repressed and conditioned ourselves to to, operate from the condition perspective endlessly. So even meditation is another condition we're adopting. And when we talk about letting go and just sitting in silent awareness, then that, when we do, we can understand the words. But when we do that, then there's a, suddenly, you know, you you want peace and happiness. Instead, you get, Confusion, or anger, or fear, <clears throat> and so this, uh, and then we uh, we see meditation as uh, very difficult because we don't want any of that. I don't want to sit in a nice temple like this and just be filled with fear and anger and resentment. It's not nice. Not pleasant. And meditation should lead toward peace and tranquility and happiness and bliss. So usually we begin with anapanasati, which is something to do to keep you busy, observing the breath, the nostrils, the point to the nostrils, being aware of the inhalation is like this, the exhalation is like this. And or we give a mantra, puto 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 puto, or different mantras. There's so many, but they all tend to keep us busy thinking or doing something like witnessing, uh, you know, concentrating on breathing. Which can lead to tranquility, but doesn't always work. So I remember years ago, a woman who lived in London uh, had been uh, meditating for twenty years, thirty years, and she she learned the. Uh, mindfulness of the breath. But she had a very busy job working in an office in London where she was constantly talking on the telephone, very busy business life. And when she would go home at the end of workday, and try to meditate she couldn't she couldn 't even concentrate on the breath, her m- mind was so active, so busy, and so many problems at the office or with the people she talks to on the on the telephone they 're just trying to suppress all this this mental emotional activity through concentrating on the breath. you know she had really. Most of the time she couldn 't do it. Sometimes she actually could sometimes when her life wasn 't so busy or that and go on a meditation retreat, she could get really tranquil because the conditions would allow for that so then we we find that retreats you know are uh, very nice, because it's all set up and 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 uh you know we don't our daily life routine is is no longer taking foremost importance in our lives. We're fitting into the schedule that's arranged for us. We eat at a certain time and meet and walk and sit and so forth, so then this is this is uh you know somehow we don't have to make decisions or go shopping, or get caught up with emotional uh, problems with our families or our colleagues. So we encourage noble silence, everybody keep silent. Lock up your iPhone, put away your iPad, no computers allowed. And suddenly, all the distracting conditions that we live with are limited. And you know, and I'm sure many of you who teach meditation realize how, after the third day, people really begin to settle down. The first few days are a bit ropey, you know. People are very restless because the conditioned mind is still. Worldly conditioned mind is still very active, even in a meditation hall. So, why is it that we can't just switch off the confusion, the the, uh, worry, the anxiety, the anger, the resentment, the fear, when we want to? Because the conditioned realm isn't, isn't what we are. We have, you know, we're not any of those conditions. If they were ours, we could, we'd have complete control over our emotions. We'd have complete control over the world around us. But because we are conditioned, phenomenal, entities in a vast universe. And we are the way we are, we have to, we reflect on that. We begin to just be the puto, the witness, not the judge of what, you know, uh, that's about right and wrong. It's not about right and wrong anymore, good or bad or wholesome and unwholesome, but it is unwholesome, is impermanent, wholesome is impermanent. And this witness is conscious awareness, as simple as that. It's, It's the experience of here and now, the reality of consciousness. So you know you're conscious. Now everybody in the temple here knows they're conscious. So that's a fact. We can start from there, to know that consciousness is here and now. Just start, uh, take that stand of consciousness here and now, stable and unchanging. It isn't judgmental. It hasn't acquired any language to develop concepts of true and false, right and wrong. It's peaceful when you begin to really trust it, trusting in awareness. And so the stability that we long for isn't found through the changing conditions that we are conditioned by or think with, but by the reality of very, the conscious, reality of here and now that we all know is a fact it's a fact it's not a theory so even the most ignorant person knows their conscious so bawana in this case is beginning to to uh, Trust in this awareness, trust in awareness. And this consciousness is not personal. It's anatta. That's it. It's not about Ajahn Sametho or any of you as separate persons. It's what we're all experiencing at this moment, the reality that everybody here, the consciousness we experience here and now, that we all know, it's impersonal. To make it personal, I have to start thinking. I start operating from the fact that I'm sitting here and you're sitting there and on taking taking all this very personally, you know, then I can, um, you know, I'm a teacher, I'm an ajahn, and uh, I'm an elderly monk, and I've got all kinds of identities that operate in the worldly way. But if I operate from I'm an old m- old monk, if I operate from that, what am I going to say? Talk about my, uh, my bad vision, about my liver, about how, what it's like to get eye injections every six weeks, what it's like to have your feet feel like you're wearing army boots even when you're in bed, I'll t- tell you about my blood pressure, and about you know how it is to be old, and a, and a kind of retired old monk in a kuti. You know, I can create a whole scenario of images about how I, as a personality, experience and relate to old age. But what good is that? You know, it's usually about complaining. Because there's a lot to complain about when you're old. And so, <laughs> you know, you, you notice sometimes when you go visit old people, I, you know, they, all they can do is grumble or complain. Because old age creates these, these emotions of grumbling and complaining. the experience of old age is is, uh, is not something, you know, just physically, it's not enjoyable. So if you operate from the identity, like being a, an Ajahn, being a senior monk, you know, if this is one's identity, then that's a very personal sense of importance. That I'm, you know, I'm an elderly monk, I'm a, I have a posh title from the Thai king, I am I'm a disciple of Ajahn Chah, and all like that. That's, you know, oftentimes what you're left with in old age is, is talking about your past or your achievements or your mistakes, your guilt, your fear about death. So old age is not to be taken personally. So taking a stand with awareness, that doesn't grow old. Consciousness doesn't age. So from consciousness, pure conscious awareness is the refuge that that is available here and now to all of us all the time, whatever age you might be. And it's to realize this for yourself. So consciousness is unitive. It's the same for all of us. It unites every single one of us. All the monks, nuns, lay people. With the Russians, the Ukrainians. With the Republicans. With the Tories. <laughs> and, you, know, it, you know, all these are conditioned, phenomenal activities that go on, but what is unites all creation where creation manifests is in consciousness. So that's the liberation, you realize your true nature is eternal, apparent here and now, timeless, conscious awareness. And what you think you are is very impermanent. Whatever you believe you are or how you see yourself in judgment, good or bad, right or wrong, it's all very, very, you know, it changes. Just like changing an attitude toward a Buddha Rupa from being a, a judgmental figure from above, to being a blessing, a icon of blessing. So how you want to look at a Buddha Rupa, you can say, well at the time of the Buddha there were no Buddha Rupas, and uh, they came several hundred years after he passed away. And you can be a purist, getting back to the real Buddhism. Uh, that of ancient India, the pure, unadulterated, uncorrupted Buddhism that we think we believe in. But the Buddha, actually, in this tradition that we 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 revere, respect of ancient India, is teaching is what we have: the four noble truths. And that's that's a teaching that is encouraging awareness, not belief. It's not about believing, it's not dogmatic. It's about giving us the right to investigate experience as we experience it. The witnessing position of experience isn't an experience. Consciousness is not an experience. It's the reality of here and now, which is not experienced. But when we identify with experiences, then we we always are going outward toward, you know, looking at what we're going to do next after winter's retreat and, uh, all, you know, all kinds of looking forward to experiences that we can imagine. But experience, we experience through the senses, through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, the mind, and this is all about change and suffering. So we, you know, time and space uh, are experiences. You know, space itself, you know, what came first, matter or space? You know, how many scientists ask themselves this question? And the materialist view oftentimes is, matter is, is our reality. Because the physical bodies and so forth they seem more solid, space doesn't have any solidity to it. It's everywhere, just taken for granted. But it's here and now we can actually perceive it. And is space good or bad? No, there's a space in the temple, is this Say it's a good space, it doesn't say anything. We say it's a good space or not a good space. Consciousness has no beginning or end. So it's where space and time manifest is in consciousness. So we go back to the very source of our being, we're being conscious here and now. And it's more or less a patient listening, waiting, not, you know, and beginning to be aware, accepting the way you are as it arises and ceases. So when talking about the beginning stages of meditation where you sit and you just get all kind of confusion or anxiety or worry or wondering whether you're wasting your time or worrying about whether you can meditate or not, whether you're spiritually developed or maybe you're not. You can, after all these years, am I a enter or a hunt? Uh, how, how can I become a hunt before I die? Or on and on like that. We take the words out of the scriptures and interpret them in a very personal way. So we take the very t- words of the Buddha and and cling to those concepts. And that's not what the Four Noble Truths is about. It's not about clinging to, to the truth as concepts, but they're directional signs, suffering and its causes, the end of suffering, and the way of that living within these very mortal forms, we don't create suffering. We still experience old age, sickness, death, through, the, through these forms, because that's the way the world is. People die, people we love, people we depend on, pass away. And these forms that we identify with, they're all going to die. And they get old, they get feeble, all kinds of problems because of like an aging human body. You know, it's gone through so many years of oftentimes unwholesome behavior or drinking too much or taking drugs or eating too much or whatever. That Naturally, the body is not capable of renewing itself, of staying young. So the body's like this. It's it's a form in space. It's a time form. It's all about time and age. But when I stop when I let go of that identity, what's left, when I've let go of all phenomena, all conditions, is conscious awareness. And that doesn't age, doesn't get born, doesn't die. So consciousness is anatta, is not personal. In this way, anatta means not. In the, we, we, you know, in a, we, t- as I was saying many times over, about how we create this personal identification with life, with our thoughts, our beliefs, our bodies, our social position, our successes or failures. That's very personal. But consciousness, which is the reality of here and now, is impersonal, and it doesn't have a language, it's not dualistic, it's unitive, it's universal, it's where the universe, the sun, moon, and stars, the planet Earth, and we ourselves arise and cease, manifest, and disappear. So that's the way it is. This is what we can actually know. We can know this through this Dhamma Vichaya, which is investigating. Sati Dhamma Vichaya, the two first factors of enlightenment, is taking this stand in awareness to the present, is the way it is. So be patient with you who are interested in meditation or who have been practicing meditation, let go of everything. You know, the conformity of the sangha is a a blessing because it is not personal. We take it personally, like who's work monk or work nun or head monk or abbot or... uh, Teacher, or you know, so these, you know, we, because of the ten, way we're conditioned, we tend to take our position in a Sangha in a very personal way. And there's always going to be suffering as a result of that. With all the blessings of the Buddhas and the apparent te- the teachings available and encouraged to investigate and find out for yourself, we oftentimes end up seeing ourselves in terms of status, position, title, which is missing the whole point of this life. So I offer this as a reflection